Please open in your Bibles to First uh, Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19. The title of my sermon this morning is Perspective for Persecution. Perspective for Persecution. Now, there's no time to do an exhaustive treatment uh, of persecution. If we were to look, for example, in Revelation 12, we would see related to persecution that the great dragon Satan is furious with those who hold to the testimony of Jesus and he hates them and he makes war on them. Uh, Peter mentions absolutely nothing about Satan in this text. So we're going to be limiting our thinking this morning uh, to the limited perspective on persecution that Peter gives us in these verses. So let's read them together. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved or saved through difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word this morning. In this text, we find Peter's final instructions in this epistle to Christians who suffer persecution. It's been a theme right from the opening chapter, and these are his final instructions. For the first 300 years of the church's history, 
believers faced many local and a few empire-wide persecutions of varying intensity. In fact, during those persecutions, if church tradition is accurate, virtually all of the apostles lost their lives. One such persecution broke out around A.D. 250. The Roman emperor Decius believed that the gods were unfavorable to Rome because the empire's citizens were not suitably worshiping them. So to his way of thinking, the burgeoning Christian movement, which had now gone from one end of the empire to the other, this burgeoning Christian movement threatened the survival of the empire. So he issued a decree commanding that all people throughout the empire sacrifice to the Roman gods and to the emperor. Those who complied would receive a certificate attesting to this fact. Well, Decius didn't want to turn Christians into martyrs. His goal was to force Christians to recant their faith to return to the pagan fold and to re-secure the favor of the Roman gods. Many Christians were faithful and suffered arrest and exile and torture. And Christian pastors were hit especially hard and many, including the Bishop of Rome, were executed. But many professing Christians were not faithful. Some bribed the authorities to obtain certificates showing that they had sacrificed even though they had not. But many more hastened to sacrifice to the Roman gods. Pastor Theseus Cyprianus, better known to us as Cyprian, the lead pastor in Carthage. Carthage is where Tunis is now in Tunisia, not far from Sicily, which is at the end of Italy. He was the pastor there, and he wrote about what took place in his city. He said, immediately at the first words of the threatening enemy, a very large number of the brethren betrayed their faith. They ran to the marketplace, he says, as if worshiping idols was what they cheerfully desired. He asked, how could so many of the servants of God, who had so solemnly renounced the devil and the world, so quickly renounce Christ? One account I read indicated that something like 60% of church members abandoned the faith during the Decian persecution. And even some pastors. Well, Decius died in battle just two years after attaining office, and upon his death, the persecution ended. And pastors alive at the time, including Cyprian, 
concluded that the Lord had chosen to prove his family, to test his family through times of persecution. Which leads me to the first of five points of perspective for persecution from this text. Number one, persecution is a test. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. The idea of persecution as a test is not a new idea in 1 Peter. It's a point Peter made earlier in the opening chapter, 1 Peter 1 verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you're going through these various trials. They are testing your faith so that you will be rewarded with glory and honor, praising the Lord Jesus Christ when he is revealed. When Peter says in, the, in our text this morning, don't be surprised at the fiery trial, he's not just using colorful language to describe how bad the trial is. He's speaking of a refining fire. He's speaking of the church being refined like gold in the fire. He's speaking of fiery trials that test the genuineness of people's faith. Trials that cause unbelief to rise to the surface that it might be skimmed away so that what remains in our lives, what remains in the churches, is a faith that is more beautiful, more valuable, and more precious than gold. Persecution is a test. One commentator put it like this. The encounter of Christian faith with hostility becomes a test that must be faced by Christians. If a Christian turns away from Christ in order to avoid suffering, insult, and alienation from unbelieving friends, neighbors, or colleagues, then that person's faith is thereby shown to be lacking. Such a testing, situations, such a testing situation allows Christians to see their faith for what it is or for what it is not. Peter had failed just such a test. Satan asked permission to sift Peter like wheat. And on the night of Jesus' arrest, he did. And Peter denied the Lord three times. But Jesus had prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. And it didn't. Peter's faith was refined through that fiery trial so that when he was arrested after the resurrection in Acts 5, when he was strictly commanded to teach no more in Jesus' name, he answered without regard to his own life, we must obey God rather than men. So if we're to have perspective concerning persecution whether it's relatively mild or severe, 
we must understand that persecution is a test revealing the genuineness of one's faith. Second, persecution is a sharing in Christ's sufferings. Peter calls Christians to rejoice insofar as they share Christ's sufferings. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The question is, what are the sufferings of Christ here? What does he mean sharing in the sufferings of Christ? Well, some say that all the struggles of life fall under this heading. But actually... A more narrow understanding is called for when looking at the many times in the New Testament where suffering with Christ or sharing in his suffering or filling up what is lacking in his suffering is mentioned. The context is always that of persecution in the cause of the gospel. So that Gordon Fee says, Christ's sufferings do not refer to sufferings in general, but to those sufferings that culminated in his death, all of which was for the sake of others. This means that sharing in the sufferings of Christ relates more to persecution than the natural groanings and frustrations of our present evil age. So, when you suffer slander or hostility or abuse or rejection for Christ's sake, for righteousness' sake, when you suffer those things for faithfully living the Christian life, you stand alongside Christ your Savior in His sufferings. You experience the same kind of suffering that Christ experienced. You share in his sufferings. And the apostles considered that to to have a share in Christ's sufferings, to be able to share for the sake of Christ, they considered that a great honor and privilege. That's not the way we think, is it? In Acts 5, when the apostles left the presence of the council, do you remember What it says, it says they were rejoicing. Why were they rejoicing? Like, why were they glad? They were glad that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced. God has considered us worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ. To suffer as he did. Paul said to the Roman church, and this is a very sobering text. He said to the Roman church, we, Romans 8, 17, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. So our being heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ is conditioned upon our willingness to suffer with Christ, to share in his sufferings. So having perspective on persecution is to understand 
that persecution is a sharing in Christ's sufferings that we might also share in his glory. That we might also share in his glory. So glory, that leads us to our third point of perspective in this text. Persecution brings glory. Persecution brings glory. And we've covered this in some depth on earlier Sundays, so we don't need to go into detail here, other than to say by way of reminder that, that persecution delivers to those who endure it, it delivers glory in the future. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when men say all manner of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For great is your reward in heaven. So enduring that kind of persecution delivers glory to those who endure it in heaven. But Peter says here that sharing in his sufferings now will not only result in great rejoicing and gladness when his glory is revealed, but that we also experience a measure of that glory in the present. He says, if you are, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now, he doesn't locate the blessing in the future like he did a moment ago, speaking about when his glory is revealed, but he locates that blessing in the present because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I love that. So, so whenever you endure hostility for the name of Christ, the spirit of glory rests upon you. Whenever you endure insults and abuse for the name of Christ, God's spirit comes to you and rests upon you to strengthen you to bless you, and I dare say, to shroud you in his glory. When we read the accounts of the martyrs, you can just tell by their words and by their comportment that the spirit of glory has come to them and is resting upon them. As Stephen was being stoned, Full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The spirit of glory had come to rest upon him as he suffered. So that John Piper commenting on this verse says, There is a special intimacy prepared for those who suffer with Christ. God reserves a special coming and resting of his spirit and his glory on his children who suffer for his name. So to have perspective for persecution is to remember that enduring persecution brings glory, future and present, but, and here Peter qualifies that, only if that suffering is for righteousness. That's what we see in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or a meddler. That, I read that, I thought, oh my, that's quite a list of sins. Like, what am I going to say about this? The first three warn against violating the law. And the fourth warns against violating social propriety. Don't be a meddler. 
why, why are Christians being warned against committing homicide? Was there a murder problem in the churches? Pastor gets together with pastor from the other city. They're having lunch. How's things going in your church? Well, not so good. <laughs> What's the problem? Well, you know, if only we could reduce the homicide level. <laughs> now, some scholars, you know, it's a real question. Like, why, why is Peter putting this, these sins in this list? Some scholars say that this was just a stock list of vices. Other scholars say this list is what believers were being falsely accused of. And those are both, I think, viable ways to look at the text. But others think that this is a genuine warning that Christians not commit such acts. And that is the understanding that I favor very strongly. I think that's exactly right. And I'll tell you why. <clears throat> often the objective of persecutors is to provoke and goad the persecuted into committing crimes in order to have legitimate legal grounds to arrest them, to find them, or to execute them. They try and provoke an illegal response from those they're persecuting so that they don't have to trump up charges against them, they have legitimate grounds. So when persecution gets violent, Christians can be tempted to violence. Hence the warning. When the authorities came to arrest Jesus with weapons, with spears and with swords, Peter unleashed, unsheathed his weapon and cut off Malchus's ear. And you've heard it said before, he wasn't aiming for his ear. And Jesus rebuked him on two counts. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The first explanation he gave when he said, Peter, put your sword away, it was a redemptive reason. This is another instance of, you know, sort of get thee behind me, Satan. I'm headed to the cross. But Matthew 26 says that Jesus says, put away your sword, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. In other words, the government has the right to bear the sword to punish evildoers. Peter, if you take up the sword, you will die by the sword for having wielded the sword illegally. Peter took that rebuke to heart. From then on, none of the apostles responded to persecution with violence. Those brothers were abused, they were beaten, they were imprisoned, and they were killed. But we read nothing of physical resistance or violence or swords. So I believe what Peter is saying here with this list of sins is don't violate the law and be charged as a criminal and suffer for that cause. And secondly, don't violate social propriety. Don't be a meddler. That's a very interesting word. I discussed it yesterday morning over breakfast with John Musum. It means watching over another's affairs. 
watching over another's affairs, inserting yourself to too much and with too much intensity into matters that don't concern you. Don't act tactlessly and without social graces, annoying people and provoking unnecessary hostility. So, enduring persecution for righteousness results in glory, but only if we're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Which leads us to our fourth point of perspective on persecution. Persecution is the beginning of the final judgment. Don't be ashamed if you suffer as a Christian. Continue to glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Continue in faith. Keep glorifying God. Why? Because it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. Now this point is very closely related to the first point that persecution is a test. The final judgment, the final judgment at the end of the age will be a great separation. It'll be a separation of the sheep from the goats. It'll be a separation of the wheat from the tares. It will be a separation of those who obey the gospel and those who do not. And what Peter seems to be telling us here is that that judgment which rightfully belongs to the age to come, is breaking into this present evil age beginning in the household of God through the fiery trials of persecution. Through those trials, God begins to separate the sheep from the goats. He separates the wheat from the tares. He separates those who are prepared to suffer with Christ and those who refuse to suffer with Christ, those who don't think Christ is worth suffering for. We took communion this morning. His broken body for us. His shed blood for us. Why? So that we could spend eternity with God. Loving Him. Worshipping Him. Enjoying Him. He suffered all of that for us. Yet there are some who know those truths and do not consider Him Worth suffering for. And in persecution, which begins in God's house, God begins to sort them out. This, this judgment, which begins in the household of God, is a great trial and difficulty that the church must periodically endure. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, they preached the gospel. They went back through the churches. They said, they urged them to stay in the faith. Telling them that it's through many, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. So that Karen Jobes very insightfully says this, summarizing what this text means. She says, it is difficult for Christians to remain faithful to Christ to the end. Will Peter's readers have the resolve and the stamina to persevere to the end? Or will the insults, abuse, ostracism, and even more serious and threatening pressures drive them to deny Christ, to renounce the faith, 
and return to pagan beliefs and living, thus rejecting the gospel of God as surely as those who never made a profession. In this sense, it is difficult for even the righteous person to persevere to the end and be saved. But the outcome for those who reject the gospel is incalculably worse. So to have perspective on persecution is to realize that through it, God is sorting out already those who are his and those who are not. And finally, persecution calls for faith in our faithful God. I can't read this text without, without thinking of Jesus' words on the cross. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Or Stephen's word, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Therefore, these are Peter's final words to those who suffer persecution. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. No matter what level of persecution we might suffer according to God's will, God wants us to entrust our souls to Him, full of faith that He will carry us into a bright and glorious future. God is well able and He has promised to deliver our souls safely into His presence and as a faithful Creator to clothe us with new bodies at the end of the age. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they make. But we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator. So the application is trust God's faithfulness when persecuted through it all. Keep on keeping on. Keep on doing good. Keep on testifying to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let me invite the band to begin to come up as I mention one other thing. About seven years after the Decian persecution, which I spoke of at the beginning of the sermon, about seven years later, the emperor Valerian issued a new decree against Christians, very similar to the one that Decius had issued. And Cyprian, the head pastor there in Carthage, Cyprian was arrested. The public examination of Cyprian by Galerius Maximus on the 14th of September, 258 A.D., has actually been preserved. And I'd like you to read it along with me. Galerius Max, Maximus asks, Are you Thasius Cyprianus? And Cyprian replied, I am. And Galerius said, The most sacred emperors 
have commanded you to conform to the Roman rites. Cyprian said, I refuse. And Galerius said, take heed for yourself. Cyprian replied, do as you are bid. In so clear a case, I may not take heed. And then Galerius, after, a, after briefly conferring with his judicial council, with much reluctance, pronounced the following sentence. You have lived, long lived, an irreligious life and have drawn together a number of men bound by an unlawful association and professed yourself an open enemy to the gods and the religion of Rome. And the pious, most sacred, and august emperors have endeavored in vain to bring you back to conformity with their religious observances, whereas, therefore, you have been apprehended as a principal and ringleader in these infamous crimes. You shall be made an example to those whom you have wickedly associated with you. The authority of law shall be ratified in your blood. Then he read the sentence of the court from a written tablet. It is the sentence of this court that Thassius Cyprianus be executed with the sword. And Cyprian said, thanks be to God. Grateful that he had been counted worthy to suffer for the name. The execution was carried out at once in an open place near the city. A vast multitude followed Cyprian on his last journey. He removed his garments without assistance, knelt down, and prayed. No doubt entrusting his soul to a faithful creator. After he blindfolded himself, he was beheaded with the sword. The body was interred by Christians near the place of execution. And a postscript is added to the account, which brought me to tears when I read it. Cyprian's martyrdom was followed by the martyrdom of eight of his disciples. We could spend the rest of the day reading accounts like that. Brothers and sisters, no matter how great the pressure, the ridicule, the hatred, or the scorn, no matter how much or little we may suffer, no matter how much or little the devil may stir up against us, may none of in this room or within the hearing of my voice, may none of us ever depart from the faith, dishonor Christ, or deny Him. Persecution is a test. It's an opportunity to share in Christ's sufferings. It results in glory. It's the beginning of the final judgment, and it calls for faith in our faithful God. Amen.